podcast is sponsored by Flash Talking. And in case you didn't hear, they've got a Super Bowl ad. Wait, can I say Super Bowl or do I have to say big game? I don't know. Okay, well, Flash Talking's got a big game ad. You can check it out at flashtalking.com slash big game. You'll also find a hidden camera prank with Improv Everywhere and other fun marketing to unleash the power of creative and make ads people want to see. So go to flashtalking.com slash big game for more. And I got to say it, this ad could have been an email. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by both of the co-founders of Undertone. We have Eric Franchi, who is our usual co-host, along with our special guest, Mike Cassidy, who is the co-founder of Undertone, a longtime ad tech exec, and is currently the CEO of M3, deep in the commerce media space. We're excited about his insights. Uh, Mike, thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. We're hoping to get some juicy details about Eric. Uh, we want to hear about how he once tried to sell an I.O. In, inside someone's kitchen, uh, which we heard on a previous <laughs> a previous episode. Uh, but before we get started, some quick housekeeping. So a reminder that you should subscribe to the Marketecture newsletter. I'm writing an article every week at news.marketecture.tv. This week will probably be about the Walmart Vizio deal. In addition, this week, we have a great interview on Marketecture TV uh, with DoorDash, hearing about how uh, their commerce media is growing. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. As a reminder, the Marketecture interviews are free for one week after they are published on Marketecture TV, and then you have to be a paid subscriber, which I would encourage. All right, enough of the housekeeping. So tell us about your journey, about how you went from undertone uh, through um, you know acquisitions, through selling, and eventually in the agency world and now in commerce media. Yeah, happy to. So um, so the undertone journey was about 14 or 15 years for me and a little bit longer for for our. I transitioned out of the business about a year before it was acquired. Took a little break, which was a nice thing to do because you guys know well the, the hustle and the requirements that go into running a digital media company. And so decided that I wanted to do something very different and was excited to take my experience and things I learned and, and hopefully add some value to entrepreneurs on their journey. And decide the best way to do that was to use my own capital and basically start a small private equity fund where I would go and acquire businesses and and be uh, be supportive to them. Uh, it was really based on the fact that one of the best decisions Eric and I made was inviting a private equity group called JMI, who was an early investor in DoubleClick, into our business in 2008. And I think we saw the benefit that came from that institutional capital, the knowledge of the team, and just what a great cultural fit it was. And so I think we had a 10 out of 10 experience where we would talk to lots of other people who had a 1 out of 10 or a 2 out of 10. And so so the thought was, hey, let me see if I can kind of pay that forward. Also, I thought I could be helpful and, and you know, selfishly wanted to make a financial return by by putting putting money to work. And so built a small team. We spent about 18, 24 months looking at different market trends. And ultimately, really got excited about e-commerce, really got excited about Shopify. And ended up uh, acquiring what well, was at the time in 2018, the largest Shopify plus agency in the United States called BBA. And I uh, bought that business because I saw what was happening with direct-to-consumer. I saw what was happening with Shopify as kind of the, the Salesforce version of you know what Salesforce did for, for CRM and then the cloud, Shopify was doing for commerce. And I got excited about what that could mean and what that could do to democratize infrastructure and technology and, and so on and so forth. And so acquiring that business and then um, up and down ride from from there. What's a Shopify agency do? 
Shopify Plus is almost like an oxymoron. We were doing enterprise work, which again, enterprise for Shopify is not enterprise as we may think of it. You know, this isn't this isn't Oracle, this isn't Microsoft, this isn't you know Google Double Click back in the day. But Shopify has maybe a million customers. It could be your kid's bake sale. It could be something at school. It could be a side business. But along the way, they they saw that there were some bigger businesses that were starting to spawn off their platform and realize as these companies got to 10, 15, 20, $100 million in sales, they need a little bit more infrastructure. And so as a Shopify Plus agency, what we would basically do is work with brands on either bringing them to Shopify or upgrading them when they're already on the platform. And so it would be everything from digital commerce strategy, who are your customers, understanding the marketplace, competition, design, development, data, analytics. So everything to put together basically a digital, a digital storefront. And so we would do those. Those were called three to six month projects. And then most of the business would be retainer work, where we would be ongoing, helping a company get ready for Mother's Day or Father's Day or whatever their seasonalities uh, were. And then part of the business was their digital marketing and helping to acquire customers on behalf of these same clients. So you acquired BVA in 2018. And then along the way, you acquired like one or two other businesses and sort of you kind of, kind of built on top. Yeah. So we acquired two other businesses pretty, pretty quickly on top of that um, within the first 12 months. Then we were rolling and then, you know, then we entered COVID and e-commerce ended up becoming a, a great thing through COVID. But at the outset, when you're supporting companies that are selling cosmetics, dress shirts, things that are you know not, not required in a world of lockdown and a world of working from home, you know, the beginning period was, was a pretty tough one for the, for the business, but then recovered relatively quickly. And then we were, then we were often running for a relatively short period of time before selling the company. And now it's owned by, uh, by Accenture. So you, you sold the business in 21 or 22? 21. And then took a little break, and then now you're back with Act Three, which is called M Three. Which, from an outsider's perspective, and obviously I'm not an outsider, we, we've talked about this for some time, seems to be like you know if Undertone and your you know BVA commerce thing had a baby, it would look like M Three. Yeah, it would. It would. It would look like it. Um, I don't know if we would call it that if it was an actual baby, but it's but it's possible. But it, you know, I think a couple things drove to this. The first was. I was excited to start a new company. I was excited to be a founder. I was excited to do the startup, buying other businesses and and growing them, but also fixing the problems that come with any business. Um, I just found that this point in my life was less less exciting, not something I wanted to work on. And so to be at the outset, to really help create every aspect of it and make my own problems to have to then solve in the future, felt like a more a more exciting way to way to go. But but you're right. So while Undertone and Commerce Media have a baby is the sort of pitch that certainly a VC would like. I, as a skeptical podcaster, have no idea what that means. So <laughs> how about a little yeah, a little I'll, more I'll, detail? I'll, 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 I'll help out. So, so we started M3 really for, for two reasons. The first was, you guys know very well, and you, you talk about publishing, and it is difficult to be a media publisher. It's been difficult to be any sort of content publisher for a very long time. Perhaps the only thing harder than being a publisher is being a retailer. That is an even more challenging and in some cases more awful business because of Amazon, customer acquisition costs, fickle consumers, inflation, the list goes on and on and on. And so I saw a lot of that firsthand at BVA. And so M3 was really meant to be, there's another revenue stream for retailers. There's another way for these companies to make money. And while retail media is fantastic for Amazon and Walmart and Target, 
it's really only catering to these marketplaces, these digital department stores, these grocers. But there's the world of retailers and merchants, which I'll use interchangeably, or commerce companies, e-commerce companies, that have an audience, that have a brand, that have a valuable proposition, but they have no way to monetize it beyond the 2% conversion rate they get of people buying their sunglasses, their hats, their shoes, their, their luggage. And so M3 was created for the purpose of creating a secondary revenue stream for retailers to, in some cases, literally to survive, to keep the lights on. And then we think when done well, to really thrive and to make new profits that they can then put back into their into their business. Is this mostly non-endemic advertising? Are we talking yeah. about like Coke ads and, and pharma ads on your commerce site? Yeah. So so examples could, could be this. You're, you're shopping for luggage. You visit to me, samsoniteaway.com. Unless you have a weird fetish with collecting luggage and, and storing it in your in your attic or your garage, you're, you're, you're a traveler. Like it's just as simple as that. We don't need 27 data points. We don't need all this sort of stuff to tell us that you're a traveler. And so Delta, Hilton, Avis, Viking Cruises, Florida Tours, and the list go on and on should be in front of that consumer while they're shopping for for luggage, baby clothes. You know, if a, if a new mom or a mom who's having another child is visiting Carter's or any sort of site that they may like for purchasing kids' clothing. Think about who that woman is, right? As an individual, as a mom, as a as a leader of a family, and the things that would be interesting to them: Volvo for safe cars or minivans, giraffes for laundry detergent, Samsung for appliances, cosmetics, because maybe the woman mom wants to take care of herself in addition to her family. So you just go on and on, and there's all these adjacencies. And so there's an advertising component, but when done well, it almost becomes more brand partnership and a little bit more in a collaboration. So commerce media has seen like a lot of takes on this approach. Like you have, what, what was uh, the company that got acquired by WPP? Trident? Triad. Tri- yeah, Triad. they were pretty much doing this for Walmart for many years. And then I was involved in a company called Longboard Media that got acquired by Bizarre Voice that was sort of a rep network for commerce companies. And also I'd like to throw out a, a shout out to Intent Media, who's doing this specifically for the travel segment, uh, where they would advertise counter travel deals when they predicted that the consumer wasn't going to buy a flight or something like that. Um, and, and it all seems to work, but it also caused, like there's always concerns like, you know, I know there's a long question, but like click out or reducing conversion rates or distracting the consumers. Can you walk us through like kind of how this space has evolved to make it yeah. possible for you to do what you're doing? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a hard business to build because it's not and we all know from our prior experiences, you could go to the New York Times, you can go to USA Today, you can go to a publisher and come up with a new creative, come up with a new ad unit, come up with a different way to monetize. And generally, you can get some acceptance. You can, you can test something and if it works, great. If it doesn't, so be it. And you go on to the next one. To go to a retailer who sells luggage and to say to them, you're going to put something on your site, it's not unusual to think that you may get a bit of a um, emotional reaction to that. What, what are we talking about? And so- Part of our journey and part of what we do is this is an educational process. This isn't a make a phone call and all of a sudden you turn on the programmatic pipes. What we're doing is in some ways the complete opposite of what's happening in digital media. We're going to retailers to create an advertising business that's a very slow walk. We've got to test it. We've got to prove it. We've got to make sure that this is a secondary revenue stream and not a, not getting in the way of the primary. So it takes a lot of hand-holding, a lot of let's let's figure out the right matches, let's figure out financial models, let's figure out a way to do this. But when done correctly, it can be super powerful and it allows you to leverage your digital assets. It allows you to leverage your physical assets, such as the box that comes to your front door. And even you know, longer term, 
to get into the actual store itself and to really do this whole you know surround sound promotion. One of the biggest issues you alluded to is that is the click off. Retailers are generally, or I'd say almost exclusively adverse to, I'm not going to spend money building a brand, driving traffic, and then having error come to my site and have him click on a Delta ad and leave. And so what, what we're typically doing with part of our product is building brand pages or microsites to live with, within the retailer and having more integration. So again, that's why this becomes a little less pure advertising in the sense that we know it today digitally and more of a, an alignment partnership. But our business is to make it advertising-like, simple, scalable, and easy to work with from an advertiser agency perspective. Yeah, as a callback, a couple of months ago, we had my co-founder from Beeswax, Shamimon, who was working on the IAB's standard for product listing ads in RTB. And one of the big objections to that is click out, which is like some retailers don't want ads in their product listing ads, even if they're high CPM, if they're click out. Um, so I just thought I'd call that out. Um, so do retailers do a test with you and they show ads and then they see how much incremental revenue they make versus how if any uh, negative reaction they have uh, for uh, people getting to the shopping cart? The retailers are already pretty sophisticated with their A-B technologies and their, and their testing. And so, so they, can, they can do a lot of this on their own and, and pretty easily. If you go to a retailer site, an e-commerce site, you're oftentimes going to see what they think of as internal promotion, what we think of as advertising. I mean, how many times you go to a retailer site and the next time you do take a look for you know, you're seven pages in and you've seen seven different times free shipping, which you knew before you even got to the site. And so if I didn't know for some reason, which meant I was probably living on another planet because it's so ubiquitous today, tell me once, tell me twice, don't tell me seven times. And so there's just all these missed revenue opportunities. So the easiest thing is let's slot into there and let's figure out other placements that make sense. Think about all the communications. Most of us don't open emails, but I bet if you're anything like me, you open up your confirmation email and your shipping email if you made a purchase of a product. And those emails get opened. They have useful information. There's no sponsorship. There's no advertising. There's really nothing else in them. And then you start thinking about longer term, the data and the integrations and the remarketing and the connection to loyalty programs. Like There's some pretty cool things we can do. That's more phase two, phase phase three. And you mentioned uh, a couple times in-store, uh, late-in-store promotions. Historically, that's always been an issue for some retailers who are um, who are both bricks and mortar and online, where they have weird incentives where maybe the store managers want certain things and the online people want other things. Is that still the case? Have you run into that at all? Yeah, it's definitely, you know, there are the silos and there are the specific budgets and responsibilities you have to sometimes fight fight through, but what we're having some of those conversations, you know, I'll give I'll give you examples. We're, we're we're working with a hot sauce company that's looking to associate themselves with pizza. And they they believe that pizza is a host food and a host food is a great place where you can add hot sauce. And so part of what we're trying to do is connect them with pizza environments. Think of it as, you know, uni pizza ovens. Think of it as ordering frozen pizza. Think of it as ordering pizza that gets delivered to your to your house. And so how can we integrate hot sauce in that journey, and that journey can be digitally. That journey could be if you actually order pizza. Does it come with one of those little, you know, hot sauce examples that we sometimes see at hotels? And could it even be when you go to that to that restaurant, is hot sauce prominently displayed on the menu, so on and so forth? So that's just one example, but that's where this can eventually get to, and that, that's part of our product roadmap. I feel like we we need to have those Italian guys from TikTok who who would send you to jail for putting hot sauce on your pizza. 
Um, if if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I've I'm, um, I'm sure I offended some some pizza aficionados. I think you my, offended me a little bit. Yeah, I, um, I apologize. Um, maybe we transition to undertone. Uh, um, so, okay, here's the hard question that I know you guys aren't going to want to answer. What's the word under mean in undertone? You want to take it, Mike, no, or you want me ahead. to? Uh, so the first, the, the first business was, um, was an agency. We were buying ads for like the big direct marketers of, of the day, the day being like 2001, 2002, Orbitz, Classmates, American Express, Match, so on and so forth. We found that there was this like ad unit that worked really, really well, uh, to drive clicks, to drive conversions. It was called a pop under, which has long been extinct. I think most of the listeners have never even heard of this thing, nor can they envision it. But basically. Picture yourself like, you know, looking at content in your browser, you close down the browser and sitting on your desktop is a 720 by 300, basically billboard ad. It works so well. And we were, you know, young entrepreneurial folks. Um, we decided to build a business around it. At the time, we were, I think, you know, a little bit better at sales than we were about brand and marketing. So when we needed to come up with a name for this new like early ad network focused on pop unders, Mike decides to call it Undertone. Oh man, that is a that is a gritty <laughs> origin story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then and then a couple couple learnings from the the naming. One is if you name your company after your product, you better believe your product's going to be around for a long time. And our product was not around for a very long time. And so very quickly, we're named after a product we, we're really no longer sold in a couple of years. And then also in a crowded marketplace, starting with the letter U, when you go to a conference and you're the, you know, the 38th company listed, uh, when you paid your $10,000 sponsorship fee is also uh, something I, um, we're, I think we both learned from. But the problem is everybody's called A today. So you got to figure out a different, uh, a different handle. So, so you had a long journey. You mentioned the investment for JMI, but you were doing Undertone, both of you, for how long? 14 years? Yeah, there was kind of like the first seven, eight years that we were doing it as a privately held company. And then there was the seven or eight years we were doing it as part of a private equity portfolio. And then and then there's kind of the seven or eight plus years now that the company's been been owned by by Parion, which is uh Israeli traded company. So I think for Eric and I, you know, one of the things that we look back on with probably the most fondness is just the fact that the, we've created a brand that's that's here twenty plus years later and seems to be performing well and people are still building careers and building networks and doing some pretty cool things. Yeah, I mean Perion stock price keeps going up as soon as you two were no longer involved. There was a direct correlation. Uh that never gets old. It never gets old. Um, <laughs> you know, why don't you take us through like some big challenges that you guys undertook it at Undertone and how you overcame them. Give us some more of the color of the more exciting parts of the story. Yeah, I mean, I think there was there were so many. I think it was you know we had a we had a constant. I think the things we got right and wrong kind of inter interchanged. I think the thing we got right is that we we created a brand that tried to stand for something and tried to mean something, and we knew it didn't mean we knew it wasn't relevant for everybody. Like we believed in brand mid and upper funnel, and there were waves of when the market was more direct response, and those weren't our best years, and there were waves where the market would come to us and we performed well. So I think having like a real focus. And believing in it, and and not um, just going in the wind like everybody else seemed to do, I think I think helped. These are great businesses, but they're hard businesses because you have to constantly be recruiting, you have to constantly be retaining. You know, we were we were both charged or expected to be growing thirty plus percent a year. So you know, twenty two percent growth in an annual basis is success for a lot. But I think in, in those markets and what we were doing, you know, it felt like if you fell, you fell short. 
And so, um, yeah, I think it's the challenges of any any business trying to be relevant and trying to continue to innovate, trying to you know, stand for something, have a culture and a competitive market that people want to be a part of. But Eric, you should build off that. Give your own spin. Yeah, well, well said. I mean, I, I think back to the to the early days when we started it. Entrepreneurship wasn't cool. There wasn't like this whole ecosystem of support. There weren't a lot of people to learn from. So we had to figure a lot out on our own. And Mike and I, prior to Undertone and, and the first business, which was called Intercept Interactive, we were sales reps at About.com. So, you know, we brought just like a salesperson's ethos and knowledge base and approach to everything that we did. So, you know, all we did was just look to sell things and find things to sell and sell more of it. And, you know, the whole like company building and understanding how to build something that's, you know, scalable. I mean, at the time, the knowledge wasn't there. At the time, like, you know, we were, you know, sort of, again, just salespeople. So I think th- there's like so much more knowledge and infrastructure and ability to build things for scale today than there was back in the day. I want to know what percentage of guests on this podcast at some point work for about.com. So I think it's it's surprisingly high. How so? One one sort of product question, which is, how did Undertone survive programmatic? Because the conventional wisdom is that programmatic sort of destroyed the ad network, as everyone wanted transparency and control. Uh, but Undertone's still chugging along. Yeah, I mean the the good thing about Undertone is you know we were so focused on moving in different directions than the market. That when programmatic really started to make an impact on the network business model, like standard display inventory wasn't that big of a part of our business. We were really focused at that point on these proprietary ad units and takeovers and video and so on and so forth. So I feel like Undertone was able to stay ahead of the curve when programmatic really started to, you know, on the trading desks and everything like that really started to have an impact on, on businesses like that. But over time, through acquisition, through bringing on good talent, like I think a lot of the stuff that we were doing, A, is still there in terms of like the thrust of the offering, these high impact units. But I believe that they're you know now all provisioned programmatically, just like the rest of the ecosystem. So the long answer was that. The short answer is, you know, we, we were, I think, thankfully, just ahead of the curve on a lot of stuff. Yeah, programmatic really took out people who were specializing on the audience side, uh, but you were on the creative side, so maybe a little bit different. Um, all right, so to finish up, uh, Mike, you know, can you embarrass Eric somehow? Can we? Uh, <laughs> do you have any good stories of being in the trenches? Doesn't have to be embarrassing, but uh, you know, we have him. Uh, Eric's the co-host; he's always here. Uh, but we want to get some additional color so we can uh, hold it hold it over his head for the rest of his life. Yeah. So, so I am. Um... Eric and I met 24 years ago, and we've been good friends since. And I would like to say 24 years from now that we continue to be good good friends. So I, I come into this somewhat apprehensive on, on what I can share because the reality is I have more to share than just about anybody. We were young, young college graduates in New York City who were trying to make a life, trying to make a career, working hard and trying to have a little bit of fun along the way. So you know, any 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 mistake any of us could have thought of having we we made or could have made during those years. Eric probably made those along with myself, and I fortunately had a, had a front row uh, front row seat to it. So I, I think I'm going to leave your audience in in, in suspense with, with some of that. And, th- and this may be a sidebar 
part where I send you an email with the 12 or 13 things that are running through my mind right right now. You've got the goods. We could do a, a listicle, like 10 most embarrassing air Correct. moments. Correct. Was he jumping into ice pools back then? Was he, like, um, you know, cryogenically freezing his nuts as part you know of what, your time? You, you know what, Eric, when I got to know him uh, originally, he was he, he's always been into fitness. He's always been into health. I think the, the the big thing then versus now is that he was just lifting a lot, and and he can he can share more about his propensity for for lifting and, and even extending into bodybuilding. And he was you know very excited and fascinating, very good at doing those things. I think he's he's realized he's trying to be a little bit lighter as the bones get a little bit uh, a little bit older. I got one that just popped into my mind. Um, do you remember the time that we were out to lunch with a rep when it was still an agency business? And again. I'm probably 25, or maybe 24. Same with Mike. And somehow there was a like a challenge or a dare to eat like a whole um, bowl of wasabi, yeah. <laughs> and you did it. How much was I paid for that? Like ten dollars, and you ate. You basically <laughs> ate like there were three or four of us at a lunch. And then think of that. Think of the portion that we each would get. And this stuff isn't exactly a high quality, right? Like we were at one of your two star, you know, Hell's Kitchen sushi restaurant in, in like italics. And I think you took three or four of our hot uh, wasabis, packed them in, threw, threw it down. And um, yeah, I almost like you snuck it past the taste buds, which made it tolerable. Uh, but you earned, your, yeah, you earned your $10 bill. Anything for a buck. Anything for a <laughs> buck. All right. Well, uh, sure. this, let's take a break. Um, come back with news of the week. A lot of good news. We, I really want to talk about Walmart Vizio, um, the trade desk earnings, and some fun stuff going on in AI. Um, so we'll be back in one moment. This architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo, viewable, but in a sea of distraction. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. All right, and we're back. News of the week. And I'm so happy I, I, my reputation is unscathed after, uh, after that ver- first part of the episode. So a lo- lot of stuff. Let's start with the, with the public company stuff. And I think the, the big thing is, as we talked about last week, it was rumored, um, it wasn't a rumor, uh, Walmart acquired Vizio for $2.3 billion. We'll get to takes and everything like that. As now an investor, when I hear about uh, a deal, my mind goes to you know number one, just the the number and the and the multiple. Um, but then number two, will this get passed right? Because we're seeing deals get shot down left and right, like one niche one in ad tech, but then obviously everybody's talking about Adobe and Figma. So Eric Sufert, who's a contributor in architecture, he actually did a really quick scan. So I think he was thinking the same. Um, Walmart has no EU business. So odds of this getting shut down in Europe, where a lot of this stuff seems to you know happen, I don't think it's going to happen, which I think clears this from a regulatory perspective. So it looks like it's going to happen. What do you guys think? I, I would have to, it would be quite a stretch to stop this deal, given that they're in totally different markets. Uh, it's not as though the TV business is consolidating. Uh, Walmart doesn't have a different TV brand, and the to imagine that they're going to kind of monopolize the CTV market is kind of a joke, given how fragmented it is. So I don't see any rational reason they would go against this, yeah. but rationality doesn't seem to be the 
order of the day in the current enforcement of antitrust laws. They're just going after everything. I wouldn't be surprised if they have some questions here. I looked at the docs and they were pretty reasonable breakup fees. There's no like billion dollar breakup fee here. So I think probably that reflects the belief of the part of the parties that it won't be that bad a deal to get through. I think so. And for Walmart, two point three billion is, you know, I don't know if that, that's what they make in a day, but it's it's a really small amount for what I think, you know, a lot of people and even in the the announcement of the deal, I think is going to be transformational for their for their ad business. Given that this is in in commerce, Mike, what do you think? Yeah. So um I was in a conference recently and, and I think these these stats are pretty pretty staggering. So take it it's twenty twenty two, so the numbers are a lot bigger. So two years ago, twenty twenty two. Walmart's media business generated $2.7 billion in revenue. Um, it was a 60 plus percent profit. So about $1.6 billion of profit. Based on Walmart's typical operating margin against the stores, the commerce, the things that we know of a couple of points, that profit, they would get that from selling $35 billion worth of toys, sneakers, outdoor furniture, all the things they do. This $2.7 billion media business is really the equivalent of $35 billion worth of Walmart's core. And so when you think about what can Vizio do to them, it kind of connects back to how we opened and what I was sharing about our story at M3. That's why the million dollars that we can generate in revenue for a retailer is the equivalent of them selling $5, $10, 15000000 million of sunglasses, lotions, sneakers, hats, whatever it is. And I think that you know this is this is one proof point of that with Walmart's acquisition. That's super interesting. I didn't think of it that way. There are a bunch of takes out there and you know we need need to go go through all of them. So we have about a b- bunch of um other news this week. Uh one person, I think it was uh Vinny from Hershey's said something to the effect of what does this mean for ACR data? Right. Because Vizio is like the the you know the the key source of ACR data which is important for ad targeting. Any thoughts on that one, Art? Yeah, ACR data is a rare commodity, uh, and uh, Vizio has already an exclusive relationship with the Yahoo DSP, so only the Yahoo DSP is allowed to use Vizio data for targeting. Um, And so when that happened four years ago, I guess, that was a real problem for other DSPs that had previously been licensing it. And the other major sources of ACR data are uh, Samba TV, which has a longstanding exclusive relationship with the trade desk, and uh, Alfonso, which was bought, as we know, by LG and is used for LG ads. So I would be a little concerned if I didn't have really good ACR data currently flowing into my systems because you could imagine a world where Walmart turns it off, turns off the spigot. To give you a sense of scale of of Vizio's revenue, they have this thing called Platform Plus, which is effectively all the revenue they get from advertising and everything else. And that's only like a $360 million business that they're making from all this advertising and everything else. And presuming and the advertising stays, it's the data sales is probably a hundred million. So there is a world where Walmart only allows that Vizio data to be used for their own ad system, which would be quite a blow to a lot of other TV-oriented business models. That's super interesting. Um, but I think the bottom line on this is, you know, Walmart gets uh, upper, you know, top of funnel product. Walmart gets the ability to do closed loop, you know, attribution on on exposure to in-store sales, and um, you know, there's uh, there's probably a bunch of other interesting stuff that comes along with it. One thing that somebody noted was uh, that supposedly Walmart has been had been looking at this for some time, and um, if you look at Vizio stock price, 
in 21, it was like 25 bucks. But then ultimately they did they did the acquisition for 11. So I think price might have played a little bit of a of a factor in this one, but this will be great to watch. Yeah, it's also helpful if you're a company like Walmart that has a lot of cash and doesn't need to worry about interest rates as much, cost of capital. Um, so I'm going to just pitch myself again, which is I'll be covering this in the newsletter coming out Monday, and I'll have a lot of thoughts on a lot of these issues. Um, so please subscribe. Yes, please do. Uh, all right, public company stuff, earnings, TTD, and App Lovin both like rip the cover off the ball. So TTD, just to run through some stats, Q4 revenue in 22 was 491 million. In 23, it was 606 million, so up 23%. Uh, net profit over the same period, 71 million to 97 million. So you know they're just like growing every single quarter. Or you flag this one. There's 10 billion dollars running through the platform right now. Yeah, that's um, a lot, which is a big, big number. Yeah, that's a much bigger yeah. number than it was a couple of years ago. They they are a little inconsistent about reporting it, so you can't really make a very nice looking graph showing how it's growing. But that's a really big number, and I think they're starting to close the gap versus DV360 and and Amazon, if you kind of want to rank those three as the top three DSPs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then you also pointed out this one, that the uh, the earnings transcript was was a good read, um, particularly around Jeff Green's comments on UID and and you know how he continues to just like beat up on Sandbox. I'll, I'll pull the quote. Privacy Sandbox is an incredibly complex product understood f- fully by very few people which will likely degrade the Chrome experience for publishers and brands, but especially for users. So he's just relentless on this one. He is. I think justifiably so. He is. I mean, it's yeah. good that he's talking up his game, but there, there's some reality to his game too. You know, UID2 uh, is starting to show some results and some trials have been released, um, and they're banking on that much more than Sandbox. I just want to throw out something. Someone smart, intelligent told me this uh, the other day, and I hadn't really thought it through, uh, which is, on the buy side, a company like the Trade Desk could kind of ignore Sandbox if they want. They could just keep doing business the way they do and just not use it, right? It's totally fine for them to not use it. And I was sort of extrapolating that overall to the market and saying, well, maybe Sandbox will just be a dud. But then someone smarter than me pointed out the fairly obvious point, which is on the sell side, if you don't adopt Sandbox, you lose all the revenue from Google and DV360. Because Google and DV360 are only going to bid in the, using the sandbox protocols, and so publishers are going to be forced to adopt the at least the uh, audience sandbox proposal, whether they like it or not. Um, and I hadn't really thought that through. It makes a lot of sense now that that person who I won't mention uh, explained this to me. That does make sense. One other thing on public company stuff. So App Love, and if you thought TTD was great, I mean App Love and even even better. So revenue up 36% year over year to 953 million for the quarter. And this is a piece that I, I, I saw, I thought was pretty interesting. Revenue for its software platform called Axon, which, you know, again, if you look at it, it's kind of like their version of Pmax, um, which is, you know, just set it, forget it, algorithmic ad targeting was up 88% and it's 576 million. So their business is heading in the same direction as you know Google and, and Facebook or Meta rather when it comes to uh, you know this like automated uh, algorithmic stuff. Yeah, I, I am not sure exactly how they define software. I think they're defining software as effectively all the ad tech, meaning their SSP, their DSP, their whatever, and then the difference, the delta from total revenue is their owned and operated because they have they have a pretty Got big it. app business. I sure. think that's yeah. what it means, but still, it's a very big yeah. App. All right, let's get let's get into the AI stuff. So so two quick hits, and we'll get into the one that Ari is chomping at the bit to talk about. 
Um, so number one, apparently New York Times experimenting with a generative AI tool. It was an announcement. There wasn't a lot of like specifics on it. It was actually a little bit confusing. It seems like it's either going to make campaign recommendations on the fly or do like real-time contextual targeting based on suggestions on the page. It was it was not it wasn't clear to me. I don't know if you guys read it and had a had a different take on it or could explain it to me. It didn't sound particularly newsworthy. It wasn't it wasn't overly clear and it didn't seem like it was all that groundbreaking. And yet there was coverage. All right, we'll we'll keep it going. Uh number 2, just a a new startup um to keep on the radar from uh Jonathan Heller, Weiwei, and Michael Rubenstein. So the original DoubleClick and then Freewheel and then AppNexus leaders. Um it's called Firsthand. Uh, this one, I think, is a little bit easier to understand. It's basically custom AI agents for brands and publishers. So in an age where they're concerned about data leakage and their data being used by other large LLMs, basically create their own and then have them interact directly by users. So great team. I think interesting idea. Uh, one to keep an eye on. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say I know I know the founders very well. Heller, as the one of the founders of Freewheel, he has this sort of DNA about rights management because that's really what Freewheel did that was unique was they they tied the video ad serving to the video rights management. And that's why the product is called MRM, which means Media Rights Management. That's the acronym for Freewheel's ad server, and so. In this announcement of their company firsthand, there was sort of a, a little bit of that DNA. There was there was conversations about making sure publishers have the rights to use the data in their AI, making sure other people pay for it. So I think that experience gives him some uh, perspective on the problem that maybe some other folks don't have. That makes sense. All right. Now we'll, we'll talk about the big one. So after last week, after last week's recording, um, OpenAI dropped Sora on the world. So Sora, if you haven't seen, it is a text-to-video product from OpenAI. And some of the things that they were showing were just insane, like high-quality, you know, mo- movie-level stuff um, with you know the most ridiculous stuff in, in, in terms of the, the characters and the images. Um, so like elephants skiing and stuff like that. People were blown away. People think this is the, you know, kind of the, the clear next wave. And then this week, Google dropped Gemini, maybe as a reaction, maybe not. And the internet just went crazy. And why did the internet go crazy, Ari? Well, um, this is, I can't stop laughing about this. So someone noticed um, a couple of days ago, I think it might have been Paul Graham who started talking about it, that if you asked Gemini for images of, say, 18th century physicists. You'd expect to see Isaac Newton. You'd expect to see folks like that. And in, and what it came out with was a very diverse set of images of sort of someone from the Middle East and someone who's an African-American and someone who might have been a Native American and all lo- doing sort of sciencey stuff. And that is a little bit of a head scratcher. Uh, and then people started going further and they started just asking Gemini for very simple things like, show me a picture of a white man. And Gemini responded with, Notes saying that this is problematic and that we need to be more open and diverse, et cetera. And they're not willing, the AI was not willing to create a picture of a white man. And then my friend Rob uh, Leathern, who used to work at Google, he showed me a tweet that he had actually posted two weeks ago from Bard. Bard changed his name to Gemini, where he asked Bard to create an image of a mule, like a physical mule with a burden on its back. And Bard refused to do that because it was stereotypical of a mule and its burdens. And so 
I, I just would love this to be an episode of Silicon Valley, the missing episode of Silicon Valley, where the Pied Piper middle out algorithm is about to be released to the public and the venture capitalists tell them, oh, you have to watch out. You know, you don't want to offend anybody with this algorithm. So they change it. They add a woke filter and the algorithm, everything it produces is black, basically. And I just think in today's fraught political environment where where people are yelling woke from the from the rooftops both in good faith and bad faith this is the funniest possible outcome that google accidentally created an overly woke algorithm and they've had to remove it they literally have had to remove all ai image generating capabilities from their from their production level ai that they just released great fanfare last week funniest thing ever i mean it is absolutely like an episode of silicon valley it's hooli like but I mean, we've been watching Google our entire careers and mostly with admiration on the business that they've built and the innovation on products and execution. I've never seen Google take this many else, and especially around AI, which is the most important thing. And I was mentioning this earlier. I've been using perplexity. And as a search experience, it is incredible. Like you can imagine that, you know, search could be disrupted. So I didn't think we'd ever see something like this, just Google on its heels. Incredible. Yeah, there are clouds everywhere. There are numerous articles coming out about Google search results declining in quality. There's an article that was being circulated quite a bit about Google uh, misranking the articles from publishers about testing products because they're easily gamed. So the worst aggregators go to the top and the people who actually do the most testing go to the bottom. Um, the question is, when does the dam ever break? with consumer behavior because 90% plus of the people in the world associate Google with search full stop. And it's, it's proven very difficult to get them to switch to just type in any other word as a starting point for their search. I think we're still a little, a long ways away from that. Yeah. I mean, who I would have never thought about using Bing search years and years ago. And now I have people telling me to use it. They recommend it, but some of the AI that Microsoft's doing in Copilot and stuff like that. So I haven't gone as far as to make it the first place I go or necessarily second place, but I do play around with it more than I have in the last 10 or 15 years, right? There's nothing I would have done beyond Google for a long time, but now like you, Eric, right? I'm trying out some new stuff and getting some exposure to it. Clearly, we're all in that 2% that's going to try stuff first at Ari's point, right? There's the 98%, which is the vast, vast majority that's going to continue using using Google because that's the verb, all right? It's what they know, but this seems to be that first little chink in the armor. This seems to be the first little you know, deflation in an area that you, I don't think you can ultimately afford to have it because it's going to be just so so game-changing. Every business has to have an AI strategy and every business has to think about how are they using it either like immediately or, or down the pike. And so we, we have one as well. But with us, it's going to be recommendations. It's going to be brand partnerships. It's going to be how do you find those connection points, right? That traveler, you know, it's easy if they're buying suitcases to think about to think about Delta Airlines, but what are the things that are not so obvious to our mind or we just don't get too quick enough or it takes too long? And so how do we use those sort of tools and then how do we use the tools for everything, right? From creative execution to deployment. And as a startup, we spend a lot of time thinking about how can my co-founder Greg and I, you know, how can the two of us really be four people, five people, six people? So it's, it's I think, constantly on our, our minds. Yeah, agreed. Um, use ChatGPT. It's, uh, it's a superpower. Let's end it with some publisher stuff. Uh, Ari, you said you had some further conversations on SP500 from TTD. Yeah. So uh, last week, an article came out talking about Trade Desk's top 500 inclusion list called SP500. 
it's important to note that this was not a press release by the trade desk. It was sort of a scoop. Um, so the trade desk was not ready to really talk about the details. And immediately, as is common in the ad tech world, everyone's worst instincts came up that this was, you know, a ploy to disintermediate publishers to force them to play by their rules. Um, I emailed a bunch of folks saying, hey, what's the deal? And the two questions there are three questions that have come up that I do not have fully resolved. If people know this, please reach out into my DMs and I'll uh, and I'll respect your privacy. So first was, is it required to be part of OpenPath to be part of SP500? The second was, is it required to participate UID2 to be part of SP500? And the third and most pernicious rumor out there is that publishers will not get reporting on who bought them. It'll be a blind ad network from the publisher's perspective. I haven't really been able to confirm any of those three, but some folks said that UID2 is highly recommended as part of SP500. So more to come on this. I'm watching this. I think everyone should be watching this. It'd be great if we got a little more public disclosure about what's going on here. Yeah, particularly on the third, right? Which is, you know, is this basically like a network of 500 premium publishers? Right. I mean, like, oh my God. Okay, great. So final one is... um is actually not that great. So BuzzFeed is selling Complex uh, to network. BuzzFeed acquired Complex, uh, which was previously acquired through JV from Verizon and Hearst uh, for $300 million in 2021. They're selling it for $100 million in 2024, minus, you know, I think the Crown Jewels, which is the first we feast uh, franchise, which includes Hot Ones. BuzzFeed is a publicly traded company it expects to do once they report. It's expected to do 300 million in, in revenue. They've got about 150 million in debt, and it's trading at 21 cents and valued at 30 million dollars. So it is really tough out there to be a publisher, and really tough out there to be a publicly traded publisher. I can't believe it. And it also just juxtaposed against the dot dash conversation we had, which you know is is absolutely crushing it and driving real growth for for IAC. So lots there. Just overall comment from two smart business guys. All right. Well, let's call it on that. That was a great, great set of uh, commentary and information. So, Mike Cassidy, thank you so much for being here. This was a great conversation. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on the podcast. Eric, it was a pleasure. Thank you for not embarrassing me. Yeah, yeah thank you, you for not you embarrassing me, me, Mike. Eric, we're going out I for do. sushi soon? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. We'll, 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 we'll video it. See if my, my system can handle it 20 years out. later. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.